You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Watching the uh, crazy stuff this week in politics, all the uh, questions being asked, we have a a new Supreme Court judge, yes, but in that whole process, I was really just thinking about myself and all of us. I was thinking about the fact that if any one of us were inspected by the world, and they could go back into your life, go back to your high school days, pull out your yearbook, look at your pictures, your, your friends, who you hung around with, what you did, how would you fare? And I know that many of us would say, well, I wouldn't fare very well. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of stuff there. I was so uh, obviously so grateful and thankful to the Lord that when he saved me, and he, as he saved many of you, that he washed us clean. And he scrubbed the past in terms of my response to God. I am free before God because of Jesus Christ. Well, that's wonderful. But the world doesn't care about that. So as righteous as we can be today, the world doesn't care about that. They only care about if they can find something that says, well, you're not really who you say you are. Uh, today, there's this, uh, uh, obviously, it's been said, uh, said this week, uh, it's, it's been said much, it's being said all over the place, that so many people in leadership are just not to be trusted anymore. You don't know who's really doing what. And with that in mind, obviously, it puts all of us at a point of realizing that we are accountable and responsible for not just what people see on the outside, but obviously what's genuine and true on the inside is far more important, isn't it? And uh, most of us as human beings want to present the best that we are when we're around other people. I've always found it uh, interesting that husbands and wives, fathers and moms really have that in mind when they come to church, but when they go home, they lose that. For some reason, we don't care what our family thinks. And we let our guard down. Sometimes us kids, we do the same thing. We we act good in front of our leaders and teachers and sometimes our class and friends, but when we get back in the car with our parents, we go back into doom and gloom and depression and uh, solitude, quiet, obnoxious attitudes and... uh, It's amazing how we don't have any problem expressing that to our families and those around us that really know us. And I want to remind us that somehow the Lord Jesus Christ, when he saved me, expects me to be a new creature in Christ all the time, (laughs) if I can say that today. The challenge for us is that we don't fall into a pattern of impressing people. And in doing that, 
really not being honest with who we truly are. And I am not saying come to church as ugly as you were before you got here. Many times we've come in the door and we've had to uh, drop the argument coming in the door to be with God's people. I'm not going to say I'm perfect. I'm certainly not going to say as a kid I I was terrible as a kid. I told uh, uh, one of our uh, girls here this morning that when my sister was getting ready to go out on a date, I'd say, why are you going on a date? You're too ugly. (laughs) I was not a good brother. I need to make up for that. I don't do very well. I do love my sisters. I don't do well at communicating, but I, I'm not that guy anymore. But obviously, we look at Scripture, and the Word of God is supposed to help orchestrate a response from us as to what we know about God, what God's done in our life. And then as we approach that, it, it, it should strike a chord in our hearts that this is who I, if I'm not, who I want to be. So I want us to go to Psalm 147. It's another praise psalm. It's in the same context of Psalm 145, 146, 147. These are all praise psalms. This particular psalm just has a number of things that relate to us. I'm talking about, I'm trying to pull out those expressions that people see as they measure us as Christians. When they walk in the door of this church and they mingle with us, there are four areas of which we express ourselves that the world evaluates. And what I want us to say is that as they look under the hood of who I really am and what I'm actually doing, are they finding something that's genuine or are they realizing that it's really just a put on? And that's an issue that we have to deal with. So let's go and uh, take a look here. We're talking about exaltation. This is exaltation part two, if you want to say it that way. And uh, again, he just begins by telling us why we should exalt him. He says, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Now that's, that's from God's perspective. God wants his people to to see who he is and be so caught up in that vision that we cannot help but respond. When I uh, pause and just reflect on what he's done in my life, uh, it should stir something deep in the well of my life that says, how can I not say something back to him about what he's done for me? And it pleases God to hear us praise him. But as we said last week, that that word extol can also mean breeding worms. And I just reminded us, it doesn't please God if we turn it on and turn it off in a performance mode. And so obviously it needs to be genuine, and that's the key, and that's a hard thing for us. We're so driven, we're so... uh, We're so driven by our emotions and by uh, day-to-day stuff that sometimes we allow all of that to control us. And so for us to just break into praise is not always easy. We have to work through all the layers of the emotions of our life and all the guilt and all the things that we deal with. Sometimes on a Sunday morning, it's tough to get there when we have so much to go through that's happened during the week. And I understand that. And so, obviously, we turn our attention to the one who's changed our life. He says, it's good, it's pleasant, 
praise is beautiful. Verse 2, the Lord builds up. Now he's speaking to Jerusalem. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. And this is a reflection, of course, on those who came out of captivity from Babylon, who came back to uh, Jerusalem area to rebuild their homes and then rebuild the temple. And it was a, uh, a, a magnificent moment in their lives, this remnant that came back to, to do this, because they came from a state of hopelessness to a, a fresh, revived future. And they, to rebuild and to be brought out of captivity from an enemy after 70 years and thinking that there's no hope we'll ever go back home. And then they're released in a miraculous way and led back and rebuild the temple. And so there is some uh, sense of that's what this is reflecting on, that the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. It's a great, a great statement for them. And I thought, you know, in an applicative way, it's just as true for you and for me. God brought us as outcasts into his presence. He found you. You didn't find him. He drew you to himself. You did not choose him. He reached out to you in your lost, sinful state and said, I love you. And he brought us to himself in just the same way. He took us from hopelessness to absolute sense of of a positive future with him in in Christ. Aren't you glad? (laughs) That's what he's done for us. It says here that he, uh, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Whatever it is that you have in your life that has broken you or that is in process of crushing you for some other thing, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who has the power to change your life, to repair the damage, to heal the wounds, That's who he is, and that's what he does, if you'll trust him. Then verse 4 is inserted here. He counts the number of the stars, and he calls them all by name. Great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble, and he casts the wicked down to the ground. There's this interesting uh, uh, sense here, and we're we're talking about here uh, in verses 2 through 6, the Lord's ability and desire to care for us. I know he can, he says so, but it's his desire that always captures me. Why do you love me, Lord? Why do you invest so much in me? Why did you give your son to die for me? And that has always struck me as something. And until uh, this crowd he's speaking with that came out of captivity, until the very day that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, everything that they had was temporary. But for you and I, because of Christ and the cross, the finished work of Christ, the, the payment paid by the blood of Christ to, be re, to set us free and redeem us, all that work he's done for us, that means that when the Lord Jesus comes and gathers me to himself and repairs my broken heart and binds up my wombs, it's for all eternity. And for that, we should burst forth in praise. But then he says he counts the number of the stars. There's this reminder that's inserted right in this first text. It's it's a great reminder to me that if my God counts and names all the stars, I'm always fascinated with this because yet the number's never been correct. Uh, You know, science can say 10 sextillion to one septillion. You find the numbers on that. Look them up if you want. I don't know how many numbers. I don't really care. 
They don't know how many. It's beyond count. And when we get into those kind of numbers, who cares? But here's what I see, that if a God who has innumerable uh, stars and planets and, and universes, and if he cares enough to count them and name them, then I'm telling you, he who invested his life in us, he knows everything about you. And he cares so much for you today, no matter who you are. And because of that, he inserts that here, that when it says the Lord builds up and gathers the outcasts and heals the brokenhearted, he wants you to know that there's nothing in your life that he can't repair. And he wants you to know there's nothing in your life he does not know. So he knows the hurts and the heartaches and the struggles and the failures. He knows all of that. And he calls out to us. No one knows me or cares about me like Jesus. There's an old hymn that said that. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? He is great and he is mighty, goes on to say. Uh, His understanding is infinite, it says here. You know, he doesn't miss a thing. So every aspect of our lives. And so he knows the inner longings. He knows... He knows the the motives underneath the surface. And he knows what is genuine today and he knows what is false. Then it says the Lord lifts up the humble in verse 6. But he casts down the wicked to the ground. There's this uh, beautiful picture and a fearful picture. the, The fact that the Lord lifts up the humble. There's this image of of helplessness and weaknesses that someone who cannot rise by themselves. And he comes along and he comes down with his mighty arms and he gently lifts us up, those who are humble. But to imagine that he then takes the person who's obstinate and who doesn't care, he, uh, he terms them here as wicked. That, that word wicked uh, usually can mean someone who's actually already involved in evil, unchangeable, uh, who has their heart against God, uh, completely, absolutely ungodly. Uh, he takes that person, and what does he do? He casts them down. That's very violent. He throws them down, is what it's saying. One he lifts up who's humble, and one he throws to the ground. Who are you this morning? Are you the person who says, I, I know I can't do this by myself. I know I can't attain uh, holiness in the, in, the, in the way that I'm made and wired. I, I sin. I'm a failure. I, I, or, I'm, or I'm just uh, I'm incapable of, of being what God wants me to be. And maybe that's who you are. But in your head down and saying that before him, he's able to lift you up. But this person over here who says, I don't really need God right now. I, he's, not a, he's, he's not on my wavelength. I, I just don't need religion. I don't need God. I don't need spiritual stuff. Don't talk to me about that kind of stuff. And that person there is basically saying to God, go ahead and deal with me any way you think you can. I don't think you're real anyway. And God tells us in his word that that person is in such a bad position with God. Then you come to verses 7 through uh, 11, and you have... An interesting thing here, we praise God for not only his care for us, but for his constant provision. Uh, It says here he brings the clouds. It says, first of all, uh, we we read here, sing to the Lord uh, with thanksgiving, sing praises on the harp to our God. 
who covers the heavens with clouds and who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. And so he brings clouds, rain, he grows the grass. I just planted some grass in my yard. I'm asking God to grow it. I need to probably water it. Uh, I haven't done that yet. I walked by it yesterday and nothing was happening. I'm like, okay, Lord, you know, it's been three or four days. Let's get this going. But I, I need to water it so when I go home today, I will try to help do my part. But obviously he does that. The whole point here is that he, he brings along all those things that we need when we need them. And even in verse 9, he even cares for a starving scavenger. I love that idea. Even though the, the, the one that doesn't, in our minds, they don't deserve anything from God. God. God takes care of everyone. You know, the weather out there is not just for Christians. The weather's for everyone. The weather is something God does to bless people. It's a way of him showing himself to people, that they'll see that their resources are met on their behalf and that they would eventually see him in that and give him praise. There's nothing I have that somehow God didn't uh, bring that into my path and to bless me and so on. But look at verse 10. In verse 10, again, it's inserted here. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. Neither do I, by the way. He takes no pleasure. I used to read that and thought, what in the world? But what he's saying is that The Lord takes no pleasure in anyone who has an independent spirit who says, I don't need God. That's what that means. And so even with his resources out there, even when he provides for us in in nature and all the things that we need, uh, there's always that person who just somehow flaunts in God's face in a sense, maybe not even intentionally against God, just flaunts the fact in an independent mindset that says, what I have, I have. I've built my, my kingdom. I, I established my, uh, my business, and I built that with my bare hands. I, I've done this, and I've done that, and uh, I'm good at this, and I'm good at that, and all kinds of stuff. And here's God just saying, I don't take delight in those things that are strengths when they're not yielded to me. And so verse 11, he says, instead, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his mercy. I was talking with uh, someone this week about the main reason that a believer would fear God. Just just pause for a second, because as believers, we sometimes don't think about this. Why would you think that you should fear God? I mean, I'm saved, I'm under his grace, I have his mercy, uh, he's done so much for me, why would I even think I still have to fear him? And we sometimes want to just say, it's all, it always means awesome, you know, uh, we take pleasure in those who, who think of God as being awesome, but that, that's not good enough, because sometimes we do lose sight of this sense of fear that I think still should be sometimes in our vocabulary. And he says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. And the reason why he says that and the reason why I think this discussion is important is because sometimes I think we can lose sight of the response we ought to have for his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his love. 
Because as we go through life, and sometimes when we don't have devotions or don't pray and don't seek his will, don't ask him for help, sometimes there's an assumption that, well, I'm a Christian, so everything's okay, and we don't even ask him for help. And what if the Lord chose tomorrow to just take his grace off? What if he decided, There's, that believer is so ungrateful, or they're so, uh, uh, they've so lost the focus of, of bowing before me or of needing me. So what if God just decides to withhold his goodness for a day or two or three? And so there is a sense of our responsiveness that we realize. So when we praise God on Sunday morning, there ought to be these things. I'm thankful for his care for me. I, I want to praise him for his amazing care for me. I want to praise him for his provision on my behalf, which, I mean, how can you outgive God and what he's done for us? Uh, if, if you can imagine that, I don't want to become... As Paul described in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, I don't want to become a Demas, who Paul said, who uh, Demas has left me. He has forsaken me, having loved this present world. So a believer can drift off and, and lose sight and, and become almost too independent from the Lord. Uh, maybe just assuming they have that grace working in their life and can get caught. I don't want that to happen, do you? Uh, I want you to look with me over on Luke 10 for a second, a little story that you'll remember in Luke 10. You remember Martha, and in this particular text, it's a very interesting text that uh, shows a character flaw in Martha. Starting at verse 38. It says, now it happened as they, that's the company that's with Jesus, that they went, uh, uh, that, that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary. So this is their, maybe where their first introduction to this uh, family, the, the, the two sisters of Lazarus. She had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. So he's in the house, sitting down, little little crowd around him, and he's doing what he always does. He's he's teaching something, some topic he's teaching, and and as the crowd is mesmerized by his his teaching, and they're just caught up in that. And Mary's sitting at his feet, listening, taking this, soaking this in. But Martha was distracted with much serving. That's the problem there, and she approached him. And she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Now, this is very awkward. I, I'm guessing that this is not a private conversation. I, Martha's so frustrated with the fact that there's a lot of people in her house. Uh, she's, uh, she has the good intentions of wanting to serve everyone and make everyone feel comfortable. And so she's busy, busy, busy doing that. Mary has been caught up in what she heard and she sat down. She, maybe she started off helping, but she sat down and she's just enraptured in, in, in what she's hearing. And Martha is boiling to the point where she can't hold it in and she bursts this out. It's very awkward. This is a very uh, 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 ugly family dynamic here in front of Jesus. Do you not care 
uh, <laughs> it's, it's an amazing, that my sister, and so she's pointing her out and has left me to, to serve alone. And therefore, it says, uh, uh, she says, therefore, tell her to help me. Like, give, give her a command to get up from what she's doing and get busy. Can you imagine that? And so Jesus uh, goes right to the issue. And he says this name twice, which is always an interesting thing with him. Martha. Martha. My, my, uh, in my life, when I heard my name called by my mom, uh, I'd hear it once. And uh, being the nature that I am, I always made her say it more than once. But I always experience what that means when you do that. I didn't learn that lesson very well. I, I don't think in my life, as I was trying to reflect, I don't think I ever heard my dad call my name to discipline me. It was always like a silent, you better run for your life kind of moment. <laughs> He's coming. But my mom would give me a warning. And uh, so I, you know, you stretch that warning out. You want to see how far you can go before you get caught and get nailed. But when Jesus does this, he's, he obviously, he's, he's, he, first of all, he's reacting to the first thing he noticed. The first thing that we read about her. Uh, you know, she was distracted with much serving. As soon as, as that, that's the first issue. And so there are several issues. That's the first one. And so as he just sort of breaks in, Martha. Martha, like, you know, just stop what you're doing for a second. Look at me. Just stop, pause, look, focus. And then he tells her this issue. You are troubled by many things. There's way more going on than just this moment. This sounds like a a brewing buildup between you and Mary. There's a lot here. But then he says, but one thing is needed. The, the, the serving people is really important. That, that, you know, that, that's true. If someone comes in your home, you want to make sure you take care of them. But he just wants all of us here to know that there's something more important than that. And so when Jesus is in the house, everything else needs to be taken to a second or third or fourth place because he is wanting to have your attention. I can tell you that uh, in my past, being a church brat, I can just tell you, growing up in church, I, many of you didn't have that experience. I did. I was raised from the nursery up in church. And so I can just tell you that oftentimes when I would catch, because I would do that, I would catch deacons and ushers and different people around the church during sermon time, buzzing around, talking in the hallway, having coffee, smoking a cigarette outside behind the church where no one could see them. And I would catch them and then I would rat them all out, being a good staff person's son. But I took something from all of that, which was that no one, none of those guys ever thought it was important to just sit down and listen to God's word. It's almost like as soon as the person started preaching, they went into motion. 
go out, got something important to do, got to go out and talk to somebody else and get this. And, and somehow I learned uh, at a young age that that is something that obviously in the context of this story, the Lord's trying to remind all of us that all of our busyness. So you know what? Tomorrow when you get up to go to work and you're rushing to get up and get moving and maybe you got up a little bit late. Sometimes it happens to all of us. And here's the Lord just saying, Byron, Byron. One thing you need today, more than you need to get busy running out of the house, you need to spend a little time. There, there needs to be behind our praise today this internal need and desire to express sincere praise for what our Lord has done in our life. And yes, his provision is important and he meets our needs and he wants to meet Martha's needs, even in that story. And her needs are more than just making sure everybody's taken care of. There's something more important than that. It's, it's hearing what he has to say to her that she's missing out on because she thinks something else is more important. Here's the third thing in verses 12 through 14. If I can go back to our text, he says this. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates and he has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and he fills you with the finest wheat. We praise him for his protection, his peace, and his prosperity. Now, this is certainly for those captives who've come out of captivity to have a sense that God is going to protect them now. And they have no army. They've just come out of captivity. They really have few weapons. They're not really ready to sort of you know, deal with what's going to take place in the enemy around them. They want peace. Obviously, they need peace in their lives. And they need God's hand over them for prosperity. But you know what? It's just as true for us today in our homes. And it's just as true for us in this church. And it doesn't mean, as we think about what it says here, as he meets the need of Jerusalem, he meets the need of Zion, kind of reflective of the kingdom. He, he uh, it says what he does, he strengthens the bars of your gates. There's this sense of protection. He's blessed your children within you. There's peace in your, in your borders. And he fills you with the finest wheat. He's going to take care of you in terms of prosperity, meeting your needs, and so on. But what it doesn't mean in this text is that you're going to avoid troubles and storms. It doesn't say that. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be affected by trials and tribulations. It doesn't mean that you're always going to have more than enough. That's not what it means. Years ago, I was, uh, well, Mary and I were just out in uh, British Columbia two weeks ago. But years ago, I was uh, flown out there to speak at a conference. And uh, the uh, host, a friend of mine, lived about, uh, he lived uh, uh, up on the mountain where the Olympics have been a number of times there uh, uh, in the Winter Olympics. And so uh, I'm up on this mountain. I think he... uh, his home was about five or 6,000 feet above sea level. And then 
on this particular day, he wanted to show me a site, so he took me up to about 10,000 feet. And uh, we were sitting over uh, a rock, kind of rock crest, and could look down below. And just down below us, not too far down, were several nests of eagles. And there were photographers from different uh, magazines that were uh, doing a, 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 a shoot on these eagles, watching them as they fly, they're landing in their nest, and you could see the whole picture from up above, and, and they would leave their nest, and they would soar over this drop-off valley, and, and uh, they would just soar uh, just even down beneath us, and just could watch that eagle work its wings in the wind and current. It was, it was a beautiful moment, quiet, you could hear them do that shrill they make, and, and he said, you know, you can come here and... Uh, come back here uh, like tomorrow and you can study here if you want. It's very peaceful or you can pray. And It was a neat thing. One thing I learned about an eagle, an eagle is uh, an amazing creature and it, uh, it senses when a storm is coming. If a strong wind is coming and an eagle's design, it would spread its wings and basically face the storm. And when the storm winds start to blow, it would lift that eagle up, and an eagle with its strength and design by God would take the uh, coming winds, and it would lift, lift it up, and it would actually rise up above the storm. And it would then soar above in the peacefulness above the storm until it subsides, and then it would come back to its nest. And it's the picture that Isaiah gives us in the text in Isaiah 40, verse 31, when he talks about uh, the, the peace of God. He says, but those who wait on the Lord, you know this text, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. And that's that picture. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And it's obviously a, 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 a picture for us that the Eagle is able to avoid, it doesn't avoid the storm, it uses the storm to rise higher and to lift itself up. And, and I guess on some level that's what we do with God. God is uh, the one who allows trials and allows temptations sometimes in our lives. He allows us to go through things. He doesn't coddle us and protect us from those things necessarily. He takes us through them sometimes. But here's the thing. God is faithful, as Paul wrote, who will not allow you or I to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. But with that temptation, we'll always make a way of escape that you and I may be able to bear it. His protection, peace, and prosperity isn't always about giving us everything. It's about taking care of us, meeting our needs, being there with us through the storm lifting us up when it's really tough. And I'm sure some of you have experienced that. I can certainly join you. Here's the next one, verses 15 through 18. Another reason we praise God. For his command over natural forces. Look at this. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? And he sends out his word and melts them. And he causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. It's all kinds of things that is, the Lord is doing here for us. 
It reminded me of that story. It's a very common story. You know it in Mark chapter 4. It's the disciples that are in the boat with him. And you know that story. And the, the winds blow and begin to build up. And the boat is starting to become jeopardized by the storm. But it's that famous line in that text that says, Teacher, do you not care? <laughs> Have you ever prayed that prayer to God? Have you ever said that to him? Lord, I don't think you care. I don't think it's necessarily wrong to say that to God. I think it's wrong if we say it with the wrong attitude. I think it's something that is said before you learn the lesson. I think it's something that you tend to say before you've actually experienced something like of his incredible deliverance. Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? It's the one thing I did not say to God. Of course, I'm, I've been a Christian a long time, so I've had, many, I've had many moments in my life where I could have died, should have died, and didn't. So this last episode was more dramatic, but obviously I did not say to the Lord on this occasion, uh, Lord, do you not care? Because he spared me, so I know he cares. But I certainly have an experience that I can attach myself to for the next event where I hope I have learned enough that I will not ask him that question the next time something comes up because there will be something else. And so if you've been a Christian a long time and you've had other things, you might have already said this in the early days of your Christianity. If you're a new Christian, you might be tempted to say this when the pressure is on. And sometimes new Christians fall because they tend to think like this. Uh, these guys in the boat have not had uh, you know, th- the kind of ev- event that comes up out of nowhere and catches you off guard, and you realize in that moment there's nothing you can do. We used to have a, a cottage in Indiana. I've told you before, we had a, a Winona Lake. It's, it's, a, it's a deep lake, and it's, uh, it's famous for storms rising up fast. I mean, they... A storm comes and you have little time to get across. If you're on the other side and you're in a little boat, we always had a fishing boat. Our motors were not fast enough to ski with. So, I mean, when a storm came, you better be scooting it. <clears throat> and there were a number of times we'd been caught in some pretty major storms. My grandma thought she was going to die with screaming one day, my dad, because our, our little motor and my dad was still wanting to fish. They were biting, but the storm was coming. And you don't stop fishing when the storms are coming. And I remember her yelling at him, you know, Neil, Neil, start the boat, start the boat. Because she hates water and she, you know, she didn't want to get her hair wet and it was raining. It was very traumatic. <clears throat> My dad's still casting. <laughs> Got to catch that next bass. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> yeah. The Lord, is, uh, the Lord is asleep in the boat, He's relaxed. Uh, he's the commander over the elements. So you know what? If you're in charge of the elements, you can relax when there's a storm. The storm wasn't something came by surprise. The storm was not an independent feature of that area. Everybody's trying to explain. You hear all kinds of people explain the uh, the area, and I understand they're in the Sea of Galilee and uh, the design uh, that storms pop up here all the time. They're violent, uh, 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 heavy winds and so on, and so that's always giving credit for this. But I want to say today that God was in charge of the storm, not nature. Nature doesn't cause its own wind. 
That's one thing a weatherman cannot tell you how it happens. They can only tell you what's happening. Because no one understands why your heart beats and nobody understands why the wind blows. And so as God, who's in charge of the natural forces of life, has this moment where he's asleep at peace, he's exhausted, taking a nap, and even while he's asleep in the boat taking a nap, he has released the elements to start a storm, to demonstrate who he is in the moment. God is in control of your life, and there may be a storm tomorrow. It's not an accident. It's not nature. It's God in charge. Can I say that? And whatever that storm is, it may not be winds blowing. It may be uh, uh, personalities that are about to explode. It may be something that you're just not expecting. It may be something you're going to hear that you would never want to hear. But God is going to allow uh, in our life things that take place. And in that moment, what he wants is for us to be able to learn this lesson. And the more I'm around him, the more I read his word, the longer I spend time with him, the more I trust him in those moments to not say, Lord, do you not care? But instead say, Lord, I recognize this is out of my control and I'm turning myself to you because I know you're in charge. And I know you can do anything. And I know this is meant for me to experience, to see your grace and power at work in my life. So he demonstrates for his disciples. And what I, again, in this text, I'm, I'm, I'm there. If you're not, I'm just reading one little thing here. I've always been fascinated by verse 36 in that little text in Mark 4. Uh, it, it just says, now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. In other words, he's crashed. And other little boats were also with him. There's always this little line in the Bible that just reminds you that the boat that he's in, asleep, is not the only boat in the fleet. And there are other little boats traveling alongside with this boat, tagging along. And as this storm brews and the guys are frantic and they're bailing water and they're probably screaming a bit loud. And as they're doing that, the other guys who are not that far away on water, you can hear a lot. And they're hearing all of this and they recognize that Jesus is is in the boat, but it seems like nothing's happening. And so they're probably frantic. There's more going on than just the one boat. And he's in control of all of it, even though he's asleep in the one boat. He's in control of the whole thing. And so as all of them are going through this turmoil and this trouble, our God, our powerful Lord, wakes up. They've shaken him. He wakes up. He stands up and says, peace be still. And instantly, the elements change. The wind stops. The rain stops. Now, in our day, I'm like, wow, uh, that's never going to happen to us. Not like that. And what we do is we so diminish God when we say that. Can God still the storm in your life? Can God take what seems like intense fear and can he... Cause that fear to cease as you call on him in weakness and say, Lord, I need help. 
it seems like this is beyond my ability to, to, to bear. And as we call out to him, can he not stand up and say, peace in your life? His command over our natural forces, he's able to do that. And he knows the immediacy of your situation. He knows that. And in verse 40, it's this conviction that he says, why are you so fearful? You know, this morning, while we were praising God, someone in here has something huge going on in your life and in your heart. Fears are welling up in you about something that's out of your control. And I'm just saying, while you're going through that, here's the Lord who quietly would say to us in a very gentle way, why are you so fearful today? How is it that you have no faith? And as the Lord analyzes us as we praise him, as we're here doing our thing, he's looking under the hood in our lives and he wants us to join him and say, am I really trusting him? Or am I living in fear? Last thing he, uh, we see in this text for why we should praise him is at verses 19 and 20. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt with us Uh, with any nation, that is, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Uh, There's this uh, reminder to us in this text that the Lord has done this great work in us of unsolicited revelation and gracious mercy. He has declared, if I can just... uh, uh, jump out of this for a minute and read that which applies to us in Ephesians chapter 3. If I can do this, I'm going to read a few verses out of here that really relates to this idea of unsolicited re- uh, revelation, what he's done for us. In chapter 3 of, of Ephesians, starting at verse 2, now Paul's talking about being a prisoner for you Gentiles. He says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation, uh, that word in here, here being uh, stewardship, of the grace of God, Uh, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by his effective working of his power. Here's this uh, reminder to us that this revelation that has come to certain ones has come to all of us now. As Gentiles now, we are fellow heirs uh, with all who follow Christ. We are in the same body. We're partakers of this promise in Jesus Christ as I said earlier, this has all come to us uh, unsolicited in a sense. It's he doing this on our behalf. The last thing that he says in this psalm is reminding us that this is the work of him in our lives, nothing that we have done or earned. He declares his word to Jacob. Jacob was, Jacob was so undeserving of anything, and the Lord declared his word to him. Uh, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. Israel was always rebelling against God, but God uh, made sure they had his word. Uh, he has not dealt thus with any nation. 
And as for his judgments, they have not known them. What is is he saying here? I, I believe that we could rephrase that from Psalm 103, verse 10. That he has not dealt with, can I use the word any of us? He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. This morning as I was, we were praising God, I'm thinking about, Lord, I'm so undeserving. I'm such a sinner, but I'm a sinner that's been saved by your goodness and your grace, your unsolicited revelation. I did not earn this. I, I, I don't have any right to know this. I, 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 I didn't uh, do anything to have this message given to me. His gracious mercy that comes to us. That he would offer us himself and forgiveness and a relationship, eternal life. And he offers that to you today, whoever you are. This great God that we praised today is offering to someone here today who is who has not declared themselves into a relationship with him, who would probably confess, I don't think I really know Jesus in a personal way like I hear sometimes. I'm a sinner. I, I, I know I do that. God is holy. But here's this holy God who is saying, I'm offering myself to you. I'm revealing myself to you and I'm offering myself to you. And the fact is, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, meaning that he has given his life on the cross for us. So he doesn't have to punish us for our iniquities. And then the last thing he says here is that he, uh, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. God doesn't judge those who give their lives to Jesus Christ. As I uh, look out over this crowd, and I see many of you that I know, some I don't know, but I want to say this as clear as I can. God's judgment is real. God's judgment is necessary. Because if God doesn't establish the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, he's not God. He has to be true to his own nature. And his nature is to love us through his own sacrifice for us. And so when Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment, to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When I gave my life to Christ, His Spirit came into my life and changed me, made me a new creature in Him. And that is something He offers to everyone who will hear that and respond. It goes on to say, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Every person is bound by this law that says that we are inferior to God. We are sinful creatures who have rebelled and who always tend to do that anyway. It's our nature. But as Jesus has decided to by himself without our 
our help or our input. He has come to us and revealed himself to us through his gracious mercy and offering us a way out of this enslavement to the nature of sin. When I uh, sing praises to him, you bet it's genuine because I know what he's done in my life. And I know what he's done in many of your lives. And some of you who are maybe newer, some of you who are visitors today, I want you to know that this congregation is just nothing more than a group of people who God had to find us, reveal himself to us through a sermon, through a song, through a circumstance, who knows how. Many of us have different testimonies of how God revealed himself to us. But all of us have had to have had that moment where we recognize that God was real, but it was God doing that on our behalf. And we recognize that, realize we were sinners and we needed a savior. And we gave our lives to him all at different ages and different stages of our life. But we've all, most of us have done that. If you haven't done that, that's the greatest thing you'll ever do in your life. It's the one thing you'll do that will change your life. It's the one thing that will grant you uh, a hope that is enduring, as we said last week. That which will continue in your life and never fade away is a, a hope and a realization that I am a person because of Christ and because I've, I've seen him and I've, I've responded to him. I know that I know without any doubt that I am his and I'm going to heaven because of what he's done for me. And no one will ever escape judgment except through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, no one gets to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ. So when we praise the Lord, when we exalt him in this place, there is so much for us to exalt him for. Would you not agree?